you are not afraid of being the first movers in a new location. Why should this city behave any differently to all the other UK cities? You've got the analytics, you've got the data, but ultimately you've got to make a decision based on what everyone feels is the right outcome. You can have the worst processes in the world, and if you've got good people, you can still make things work. As the forward funding market come back, that trend will come back. What's going to happen with the OPEX? I think technology will play a part in that. The world moves much quicker. You, you might only have a six-month window before your next economic impact hits. Welcome everyone back to our second episode of Reinventing Real Estate. The whole point of this podcast is to grant you access to the trailblazers in the industry and find out insights on where they think real estate is going, what they're working on at the moment, and their market perspective. So we're going to jump right in, and we're really honoured to have Alex Peace with us, and also George Steyer. So I will hand over to you guys to give a better explanation of what it is that you both impressively do on a day-to-day basis. Morning, thank you. My role is really looking after all of our acquisition, planning, development, divestment strategies across group and across all of the sectors that we operate in, so student accommodation, build to rent, co-living and affordable housing. I'm uh, George Dyer, so I run our divestment team at Watkins Jones, so that effectively is our capital markets, sort of investor-facing piece, so transact all our forward funds across build to rent, co-living and PPSA, and equally have the joys of a bit of asset management as well. Obviously, you've got some very impressive projects that you've just been working on. So you just exchange contracts with funds managed by KKR for the forward funding of student accommodation scheme in Bristol. And then, of course, your BTR development in Belfast with LNG. So we're going to dive in a bit more to that later on. It would be great to discuss with you both how you got into your personal experience in and journey in real estate and how you got into real estate to begin with and how your career progressed to this point. So I don't know, Alex, if you want to kick that one off. Sure. I I guess I got into real estate by mistake um, is the honest answer. I did psychology at university and really came out knowing one thing, which was I didn't want to be a psychologist, (laughs) didn't want to be a psychiatrist, and um, realized I had to do something. So I ended up going traveling for a year and contemplating what, what I might do. And the, the one thing that had always interested me was the built environments, architecture, beautiful buildings. And yeah, so I guess with nothing better to do, I, I thought I thought I'd move, move into that sector. So I, I did a master's at Oxford Brooks uh, University or Brooks College Oxford, as my grandfather insisted on calling it. Um, and yeah, I, I probably did quite a classic route. I, I then graduated that and uh, went to Savills and did their graduate recruitment scheme. I had a really good time there, really enjoyed it. They're a very good organization. And then, yeah, I, I did the, the rotations. I, I did a mixture of commercial and residential, which I found really beneficial. But I always enjoyed the residential side more. I found it more interesting. I found the, the people more engaging. I found the real estate more identifiable with. And so I did six years in their capital markets team on the, on the residential capital market side, mainly focusing on student accommodation, which... Back then, that was the 2005, 2006, so the sector was really just starting and it was it was quite exciting. No one at Zavils really knew who we were, what we did, and we, we stayed under the radar and, until suddenly we had the GFC and suddenly we were the only profitable department in Zavils and, and suddenly it became a bit more mass market. But after that, I, I'd always wanted to go client-side, I always wanted to you know, see what that was like and, and yeah, I, again, I, I really enjoyed the brokerage side, but I wanted to be a decision maker actually with with regards to the real estate and actually making decisions and and, and actually d- delivering and developing something so Watkin Jones was an opportunity that came along and yeah it's it's been quite a journey I've, I've been there since 2010 so I've transcended the when I joined they were very much a Welsh family business and it was, it was run as such and I say that absolutely with zero disrespect it was incredibly we did some incredibly good things and yeah that journey has has gone from well, Welsh local sort of contractor through to national developer, uh, all the way through to floating the business in 2016 and becoming a fully fledged PLC. And yeah, it's, it's been a really interesting journey. 
Also, it's quite interesting, I suppose, when you say about your psychology background, because as we all know, that probably pay, like plays more of a role actually in transactions. And I assume that does actually really assist you when you're reading a situation, when you have to gauge how people are feeling. It probably does assist in, in a way. Yeah, look, I mean, anyone in my team will tell you, you know, my, my three things are emotional intelligence, resilience and adaptability, and they're all intertwined. And yeah. I do think it's the most important thing you have in real estate is, is relationships. And I know we're going to come on later to talk about technology in property, and it could well transform certain elements. But the one bit will always remain there is that ability to impact a transaction or a deal through yeah. your personality, through your relationships. Um, and yeah, that's the bit I find most interesting. It's so funny you say emotional intelligence, because often that's something that is completely disregarded in a lot of sectors, specifically the real estate sector, because often people say, oh, this person's really good at transactions, or this person's very siloed into analytics, but often they're not, employers aren't often seeing the, the benefit of that more involved emotional intelligence. So it's really refreshing to hear you say that, because actually that's something that needs to permeate the industry in a lot more ways certainly from a brokerage perspective, because we always feel that emotional intelligence is incredibly important when you're managing various different people, whether it's lawyers or purchasers or even vendors as well. So I was at York University uh, studying history and politics, had a sideline DJ career, as we've discussed. Love it. So yeah, I did undergrad there for three years, similar journey to Alex really, I left having done history and politics and decided I didn't want to be a history teacher or wasn't that passionate about getting into politics itself. So I ended up getting onto a bank graduate scheme, I went into corporate banking with a Bank of Scotland corporate. I did a two-year rotation. My first six months were in private equity based up in Leeds. Then went on a very interesting journey through 2007-2008 with HBOS. Came down to London, did six months in what was the strategic finance group. Then I was meant to move to Paris to do leverage finance um, and yeah, Lloyd's bought the bank and rightly said we're not sending a graduate all expenses paid to Paris for six months so they said well we've got a job in the real estate private equity team do you want to do that I moved over there for six months not really wanted to get into real estate a bit like Alex and end up staying for a year within that team working on really restructuring some of the very complex and challenging positions that HBOS had got itself into and after the 12 months managed to get an interview for an analyst role so transitioned over to Schroeder's into the fund management side there working on fund-to-fund investment across the UK, but then latterly more on the global side as well. I was there for about two years. It became quickly apparent that the Eurozone bond crisis was really hampering equity raising, and it, that team yeah, was you know, still operating a couple of funds, but there wasn't too much long-term growth. So um, I got a job at Invesco working at uh, in the UK Nordics transactions team. That was predominantly doing deals in Sweden initially, so I was there for about a year and a half doing that, and then... Moved over to um, what was a global mandate for a German pension fund, um, investing opportunistically into anything that was real estate. It was really quite multifaceted and very interesting. And and then I had met a good friend, Paddy Allen, out in Amsterdam. We were both working out there and he would moved over to work for Nick Porter. So he said it was a platform called GSA. And he said, well, why don't you come in and... I ended up running two joint ventures there. So it's been a pretty big journey for all of us and myself, Paddy, and another colleague, Andrew. And yeah, really switched from approach to gamekeeper, did the V2 deal with DWS, did some stuff in Ireland, some stuff in Spain, and then did a deal in Wembley, which is where I first got to know Alex properly. And yeah, we had a number of chats over a bit of time. And Alex said, we've got this really interesting role. And that was three years ago. Walking Gen has been great. It's been a really, really interesting experience and seeing the business grow. Built a really interesting team around it as well. Brilliant. Fascinating journey, isn't it? Yeah. Because often in real estate, there's a very predefined course, so to speak. You go to, akin to Alex's experience, you go to a, a graduate program and then you go on rotation and then afterwards you elevate yourself through that. But it's really interesting to hear that actually you went through a completely different route and especially that private equity and finance route because yeah. ultimately and that's where parts of the real estate business are heading but it's really interesting to hear from you how you see the differences in the sectors and do you feel like the finance and private equity sector was a bit more fast paced or that they were further progressed or 
they had different tactics and methods for marketing themselves than the real estate sector has. It's just interesting to understand a bit more about the differences. Yeah, from a PE perspective, again, I was, wasn't a huge amount of time, but the whole vendor DD piece is very interesting. The fact that you can close a deal in two weeks, in which yeah, well, we've just done, but it, it's that state of readiness, getting to market, getting things sold, and yeah, it's incredibly analytical, incredibly around focusing on the numbers and how that all works, works through. There's a lot of sort of themes you can take from it. That relationship is still very important. How you build that relationship across a deal, real estate has a bit of a way to go in terms of probably moving that direction but operational real estate is effectively buying companies in many ways or buying operational exposure so people are more and more attuned to it with more and more private equity guys coming into the space the sector is having to evolve the the days of the sleepy fund manager doing a deal and taking six months to get it done is with more and more private equity guys coming into the space that will diminish a bit you still that that focus on transaction speed will increase equally doing stuff in the u.s we did deal in boston close that in four weeks start to finish um, but the vendor was absolutely shouting at us because two weeks is standard in the US. Um, oh, seriously? Yeah. Um, the UK has still got a bit of a way to go on that. Um, but yeah, it's something we've, we've been very focused on as a business. How do we improve that transaction timeframe? It, it de-risks the transaction. George is right. Speed of execution. If, if you look at what's happened in the economy, in the environment since 2016, we, we seem to have moved away from these very long bull markets where everything's smooth for a long time and then yeah. you have a long decline. It seems to be a lot shorter, sharper impacts. The world moves much quicker and everyone's trying to catch up to that. So you, you might only have a six-month window before your next economic impact hits. Yeah. And so we're trying to become a bit more tuned to that. And how would how have you found, Alex, that the processes have changed, I guess, since you've gone from a private family-owned business to a public company have you found that has it slowed down the process in some ways or or is there a lot more legislation and that type of thing or, or are you finding that it's still the same speed that you can execute these transactions yeah no we've got processes now <laughs> <laughs> no that clearly there's huge differences and, and actually a lot of similarities as a, as a family business i guess we prided ourselves on being able to be quite entrepreneurial, be quite fleet of foot. We put a lot of stall in. Our word is our bond. If you shake hands on a deal, you, you then go and execute the deal. Actually, all of that is still absolutely applicable to the way we try and do business now. We are massively partnership orientated. The two deals we've just done with KKR and Legal and General are absolute manifestations of that. So those have been driven by personalities and relationships which have gone through previous deals, history, track record, but also personal relationships. And so all, all of that that you learn as a family business absolutely tra- translates into a PLC. I think clearly you need to have more due diligence. You need to have more paperwork. I'd, I'd say that the general core analysis remains the same. It's real estate. You, you've got to work yeah. out who's going to live there, who's going to buy it, what it's worth, what it's going to cost it. All, all of that remains the same, but. Yeah, look, that, it comes with the territory. If you're going to be a PLC, your shareholders want to understand that there is really good governance, really good uh, due diligence. And I don't think it needs to slow slow things down too much. If you do it badly, it will do. But yeah. if you can get some good processes and good people, the key thing is you can have the best processes in the world. And if you, have, if you don't have good people, you, it'll still be slow, yeah. it'll still be clunky. You can have the worst processes in the world. And if you've got good people, you can still make things work. Yeah. Um, what we're trying to do is We've got really good people and we're trying to make our processes match that and, and that, that's the whole how you improve as a business. I mean, what's really interesting to hear from your perspective is obviously you joined and then six years later you IPO'd. And what what do you feel like are the key decisions that were made along those six years to get from the family business fleet of foot to that IPO point where the business had grown quite significantly and there was key objectives that had met in order to really hit that larger scale national developer status. It was a gradual transition and it came out of a really tough time coming out of the GFC. We were probably over leveraged as a business back then. You know, the banks asked for all their money back and that forced us to really change our strategy and our outlook and we moved from a more traditional developer model where we were building out stock using debts and our own capital and then trading it. And and that, I guess, created through necessity 
a, a much more capital light model, which was which was the forward fund model. To make a forward fund model work, you really need to understand institutional capital. You need to work out what they need. You're asking someone to pay you hundred million pounds for a piece of derelict land and six inches of documents and specification documents. To do that takes trust. It takes track record. It, 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 take, it takes a lot of building up of those relationships. So our whole attitude started to change as we went into this capital-like model. Reasons for floating were probably very similar to, to many family businesses. The family did want to take some chips off the table. They had, this business has been running since 1791. It was, it was nine generations of family. And yeah, they did want to take something over the table, but they also wanted very much to stay involved. Being a PLC, we looked at it as a real alignment with our clients. What's going to work for the institutions? Well, if you've got that PLC status, they know that you've been through that due diligence. They know that you've got good governance. That, does, that helps the alignment. And we also realized that we needed to change our management structure. One of the classic characteristics of a family business is you have quite a narrow leadership structure. You, you, you do end up filtering everything through to the family for ultimate decisions on, on key things. And as you get bigger and as your projects get bigger and more complicated, you can start log jabbing the system if, if you don't have a, a, a more appropriate management structure. Mm. So the key things for us for floating were one, the family obviously had, had their own drivers, but we wanted better alignment with our clients and, and the ability to grow. And we also wanted to sort of modernize the business and modernize the management structures. So th th those were the key things that were, that were playing on our mind w when we went through that process. Brilliant. Okay, so we're going to jump into our two truths, one lie. This one is specifically about co-living. So I'll read out the three statements and then afterwards we can just chat about which one we think is the lie. So the first one is the average age of a co-living resident is 25. Second statement is co-living is more affordable than BTR. And the third statement is that there are only 3,500 operational co-living beds in the UK at the moment and a pipeline of 30,000. Okay. It's average age of 25 for a resident. I can believe that. Where their product's positioned, we've seen and we've got a couple of, I'd say, smaller schemes that are effectively co-living across the wider walking Jones business, but they are... There's a real mix of ages from speaking to our operational colleagues. So I could see that trending down. So 25 would make sense. Ability is an interesting one because I suppose it's how you define yeah. ability in the context of it on a pure rent per square foot. Probably curling will be more expensive because it's more dense. But equally, in terms of services, amenity provision, you know, all yeah. inclusive rents, and that's typically what you get with built rent. So stripping all that out, yeah, it's, a, it's quite a subjective question, I suppose, on that one. And then the third one was. Sorry. Um, About 3,500 operational beds. Okay. Yeah, which again feels probably about right. Sounds about right, doesn't it? So I'd, I'd, say, I'd say the middle question, the middle one is probably the, the lie out of the two, out of the three. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because age of the co living resident, everyone thinks it's quite young, young don't yeah. they? And, and um, that's quite like a misconception. Yeah, and, and it, it very well could be 25 or could be 23 or 26. I don't currently know. But from our knowledge of speaking to quite a few people in the co-living market and certainly at Folk and various other locations, it seems like you go plus. anywhere from your early 20s all the way up to, I think the oldest resident was like 83 or something, wasn't it? And then what they've found at the moment is is cracking more of like a 30 plus age demographic, which is actually super interesting when you think about people thinking that it's a graduation from student, when in fact actually it's appealing to an older demographic. Also, the fact that it appeals to a much wider demographic makes it such an interesting use class because of course you can have some students within the building, but it's not exclusively student. And then you can appeal out to, to a much wider demographic. Yeah, no, you've hit the nail on the head. That, that, that's really the way we look at co-living. Why it's interesting is you can have lots of different narratives. It's not just the same narrative for each yeah. location yeah. and each scheme. I, I, I do think there is a place for co-living in UK real estate. There will be a few people who catch a cold on it because it doesn't work in all locations, in my opinion. Yeah. And it looks great on an appraisal because, as George said, it's it's a very dense product. Therefore, you can drive high pounds per square foot values. But you really need to do your research and understand 
what what is your narrative? Who is your customer base? Who are you appealing to? Who is going to live there? Co-living has a bit more nuance. So which one, Alex, do you feel like is the lie in, in this three? Yeah, I'm probably pretty aligned with George, that three, three and a half thousand beds built. It might sound even a bit high, but it's, it probably is, is, is in the, the realms of reasonableness. I'd, I'd say probably the age one is, it could be 25, it could be could be 30. So it's the average age is the lie. So it is 30 plus average wow. at the moment. One nil, George. <laughs> <laughs> but that is... That, that's also an interesting one just to progress that co-living conversation because obviously you guys have, I would say a lot of transactions that have happened within the co-living space have been largely London-centric. Obviously you guys have identified Leeds as, as, as a key location and I would love to hear more about that strategy and also with your obviously BTR and Belfast, you are not afraid of being the first movers in a new location and I would love to hear your thought process behind that and the strategy behind that. Sure. I mean, look, if I pick up why, why Belfast and it is it's quite a good analogy for Watkin Jones approach to real estate. We got into build to rent off the back of PBSA. We, we looked at the synergies. We looked at what are we effectively doing with PBSA? We're creating communities for people to live in within, within a building and, that, that's the exact same thesis for build to rent so we were one of the first developers well the first private developers to go across to Belfast and we, we looked at the demographics for students there was two great universities there was almost no uh, accommodation other than university provided accommodation and and the question was well why why should this city behave any differently to all the other UK cities there's going to be the same demand drivers you know, people are going to want to have better quality accommodation so we, we took that big leap, and, and it was a leap of faith to an extent, but it was an educated one. We did the first couple of PBSA schemes in Belfast, and we've ended up doing five or six there. And we were able to take that, I guess, that confidence and knowledge that the city was behaving how we thought it was and, and translate that to build to rent. When we were looking at that overall thesis, again, it was the same thing. Is Belfast is one of the most exciting cities to visit. It's got fantastic leisure, fantastic restaurants. It's hugely popular now with office occupiers. Um, all, all the big corporates have got big offices out there. All of this is creating this environment, but there's no residential within the city centre. So, yeah, to us, built to rent was a no-brainer, albeit it had never been done before. So is that gut feel <clears throat> then, or is that is it, is it a combination of data, gut feel, and, and everything in between? And obviously that goes into a conversation about AI because which we'll talk about later, but you've got the analytics, you've got the data, but ultimately you've got to make a decision based on what everyone feels is the right outcome. Yeah, for me, and, and the way we are quite rigorous in, in our approach on this, every year we will do a target market analysis and, it, and it's quite a detailed quantitative analysis where we feed in lots of data in, into a model that we've built, and this, this is for co-living student and build to rent, and it spits out cities that we should be looking at and targeting. That quantitative data is really important and, and you need to be fact-based. You need to be data-driven. But in real estate in particular, there is always a qualitative element. There is always a human factor. And more so in residential because everyone can identify with residential. Everyone's got an opinion yeah. on what a residential building should be or should yeah. provide. So we, we would be pretty foolish to just rely on the quantitative data if if a fund manager is telling us we are never going to invest in this city for completely different reasons. So we do a quantitative analysis and then we put a qualitative overlay on it to say, look, what's happening on the planning environment? What's happening in the political environment? What's the investment appetite like? If you match both the quantitative and the qualitative and, it, and the both are positive, that, that's when you invest. And George, I'd love to ask you, how do you keep innovating and and what are your key milestones for, for innovation at Watkin Jones? There's probably a number of elements to it. Firstly, on, on the analysis, how we're looking at markets. As Alex says, we really progress that. Keep looking at how we're underwriting, how we're, how we're looking at rental growth, how we're looking at yield profiles, how we're looking at the underlying the investment thesis is quite important. And then equal, how we're looking at our internal processes. So how quickly can we get stuff to market? How can we be as efficient as possible through our legal process? How, how can we alleviate that initial 20% of getting the contracts ready to go and things like that? All these incremental elements have such a 
big benefit at the, at the end if you can get it right. And the product itself, we, we're constantly reviewing our specs. So that's, that happens once a year. We're about to relaunch our, our PPSA spec shortly. Looking at the trends in the market, ESG, what, what do we need to be doing there? Not just for now, but also for the next sort of three or four years, because that's how our investors are looking at the developments themselves and, and beyond. One of the key questions that I often get asked, is forward funding a structure that we want to do? Has the forward funding market come back? And is the structure still appealing? And I suppose it would be great to get your views on that because clearly the structure has gone through lots of different iterations over the past few years and we've seen rise in debt costs and various other things. But from the transactions that Jenna's talked about, we've seen that actually that is a structure that is sustainable. I still think forward fund is absolutely a viable transaction structure and it'll be the predominant structure going forward as well for, for, for a number of reasons. There's no point pretending that forward fund is, is rocket science. It is a relatively simple concept and structure, but it's actually quite hard to do well and it's, it's, it's very hard to do at scale. And again, it comes back to a lot to do with trust and track record and in that counterparty um, position because you are asking some risk-averse capital to give you their money to to deliver them something they can't see it they can't touch it it's it's not there at this at this point in time so yeah you have to be able to demonstrate that you're going to look after their capital and you are going to deliver and put putting all all the various checks in place to give them that confidence is is more difficult to do over a sustained period of time if you look back and say what what am i really proud of at Watkin jones is that we've done multiple transactions with the same parties our repeat business with institutions is phenomenal and that is not because we get everything right on every single transaction but it's because we make sure we sort it out if, if something has gone wrong you problem solve and, and you make sure you honor the relationship and and that's why they will come back because everyone recognizes building a, a large-scale development has its challenges you know, things are going to go wrong you know, unexpected things are going to happen so you look forward fund absolutely is, is is a great you know capitalized structure the investment market like it because it allows them to stay right on top of the current trends. You are getting the newest stock in the market, so you are getting the most future-proof stock in the market. You're getting access to that. Also, there's much more capital looking to allocate into the sector than there is stock available. So the only real way to access it is through forward funds. What's good about the forward fund structure is a very delineation of risk between the development side and then the market risk. And it is the simplest way of, of approaching ultimately boil down investment to its simplest form. It's basically buying and selling risk. And yeah. we buy a plot of land, we get planning on it, we take the risk on for that, we then build the scheme. So we take all that risk piece through. For a funder, they are sat there taking the market risk at the end and having that clear delineation works for everyone. Now, obviously, at times like this, there becomes a more general question of is that that risk return metric right? And then that, that that's, may lead to some flexibility on structures in the short term. But if you look at where the funds are in general and where people Want, how they want to invest into, into the sectors and the, what they want to achieve in terms of returns and risk, the forward fund is the is the best way of getting that um, that balance. Um, yeah, slightly dislocated markets at the moment, as we all know. Um, but the reality is that trend will come back. I, I can't really see many funds stepping into that development piece. Yeah, and even if they are pushing that market risk back onto the developer, which I, I know some are, and a variety of different structures, all that's going to end up happening and in the worst cases, effectively, you've got a very, very unmotivated developer who's out there. And ultimately, you take, you, 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 in, the, in, the end, in the end, you are taking that. You think you've offset the market risk by actually taking on the development risk because that developer has not got the alignment that you need to deliver that product. Um, yeah, and no, that's absolutely right. And what Alex said about delivering the best and brightest in locations is really apt because ultimately what we're all seeing in the sector and, and certainly the operational real estate market across all living elements is that trends are evolving so quickly whether it's fire regulations or esg strategies or technology or various other things so actually having that new product is becoming more and more desirable because when you are buying existing portfolios certainly ones that are built 10 plus years ago there are issues clearly of, across a broad variety of different categories and also the ability for students to live in those buildings or or obviously other residents for BTR or co-living. That's a really fascinating point. 
Yeah, and also I'd love to jump back to that innovation point because having your own operator in Fresh, obviously incredibly innovative and really gives you that competitive advantage. I'd love to know the thought process behind that and integrating that within the business and the key benefits that you've you've seen from that in terms of adaptability and and strategy. Fresh was launched the same year I joined the business in 2010 and it, it came from a place where actually the woman who we brought in to run it was a lady called Rebecca Hopewell and she'd been a fund manager at Quintain and we were doing multiple deals with them at the time and the honest answer is she was con- a t- continual fawn on our side looking to make us improve our product, making us, she, she wanted the best experience for her customers, her students, and she wanted the best buildings and she kept pushing us to improve and actually we responded and then and, and that's why we had a good relationship and, and, and we did sort of think actually we should just have her on our side and actually rather than having an abrasive relationship with, with an investor, let, let's, let's get ahead of the game, let's start thinking about it from, from that point of view and not from a contractor developer point of view, yeah. let's think of it from an end user point of view. And, and it was really a very forward thinking piece of work from Mark Watkin Jones, who, who launched it to say, actually, how are we going to get more? It was driven, how, how are we going to sell our portfolio? How are we going to attract institutional investment into the student space? Because at that time, UK institutions weren't investing in, in student. It, it was much more private equity and, and private companies. And what we realized was, they don't want to manage this stuff. They don't want to be associated with day-to-day management and, and the headaches that people commonly perceive with students. So, so we built this French platform, firstly, to just to support our own sales and, and to be a conduit for institutional investment. And little did we know how successful they would be and how much of a demand they would be. And yeah, we, we try and lever that. But for us, it's not just an income stream driven by Fresh's management fees. It's much more holistic than that. It, it is all about... What value add do they have in our product development? What what value add do they have in the markets we should be investing? What intel can they give us on trends that they are seeing? So it, it became a real no-brainer. So they, they were set up originally outside of the Watkins Jones business as a standalone, but when we floated, we thought it'd be disingenuous to our investors and, and, and the business if we didn't buy them in pre-float. So Fresh became fully integrated within Watkins Jones just before we floated and yeah, it now gives us that end-to-end uh, solution. I suppose as you identify that whole piece about the benefit of having these operational buildings is that tenants become customers and they're getting that elevated experience versus being in a typical HMO whereby you've got grumpy landlord and your tap's broken and it takes a, a week to fix and, and things like that. So looking at it from the end user has really revolutionized and will continue to revolutionize how people live and how people demand to live. At the moment, it's it's there and people are buying into the product. In the future, it will be non-negotiable that, that they're in these built environments where people actually care about their, their user experience. Obvious question in the market at the moment from an investor's, investor's perspective and post-Ukraine and everything else was always what's going to happen with the OPEX? And we obviously saw a really sharp rise in OPEX and now slightly plateauing off. What are you guys seeing from from your experience of working alongside Fresh? <clears throat> yeah, look, OPEX clearly did increase and, and that was largely driven by fuel and energy uh, costs. That, that, that was one of the primary drivers for it. As, as a group, we, we try and be on the front foot. So you can't outrun it completely but we we did hedge from a fresh perspective they hedged all their energy costs which meant that they were their clients were insulated to a much greater extent than than perhaps others were when when that real peak came on we, we'd bought in energy costs much earlier so that, that was a real advantage I, I do think particularly on build to rent actually that there's still a way to go operational costs will come down because increasingly people are learning the lessons from from pvsa about how to manage mass occupied buildings on the built rent side it's still a little bit dislocated it's still a bit regionalized it's it's moving from that more traditional way of letting residential buildings in, into a much more commoditized way of way <coughs> excuse me way of way of managing so I, I do think there's there's scope to drive down the costs and it's something that we're looking at continually technology 
we will play a part in that. Lots of people moving to those app-based systems so they can try and deal with tenants' queries, the, the leaking sink, etc. So th- there is still quite a way to go. That technology will help drive down that or, or drive that operational efficiency. So we're going to get on to future of property and, and discuss about how technology can drive the the industry forward. I'm going to kickstart that with our two truths, one lie. So the first one is chat GBT is the second fastest app of all time. And second statement is Goldman Sachs predicts 300 million jobs will be lost or degraded by artificial intelligence. And the third statement is AI can learn tenant behavior patterns to optimize energy consumption. What do we think? Which one do we think is the lie? Interesting one. Second fastest app. I, I can well believe that. Uh, it is creating a massive storm. Yeah. You cannot avoid hearing about it, talking about it. We were at an event last night where they had a effectively a futurologist talking purely about that and AI and, and, and its impact. So I could well imagine that has been one of the fastest growing apps. It's, it's, it's quite terrifying, actually. The 300 million jobs lost. I mean, again, I could quite believe that in the context of what you know the potential for it particularly yeah in some some in- industries there's gonna yeah. be a real shift away from that, that sort of process piece now whether i don't believe these jobs will necessarily be lost but it'll be a, a shift in yeah working patterns and approach which could have massive benefits for society we might all get a little bit less which would be good but equally yeah i don't think that's the crazy statement and then the final was on the energy energy costs, and I absolutely could see that. Yeah. yeah, and I've heard of a couple of developers doing stuff, particularly in Europe, around you know, energy consumption and able to use data to assess how a building's going to heat up during the day based on other forecasts, and then adjust the blinds and things like that to to lower that. So it's a really interesting approach, and as we all move towards that net zero target, that's very very it'll be very very become much more prevalent um, around building operations. And probably maintenance, predicting when things might break and when you might need to replace a part and things like that, rather than getting ahead of the curve, rather than waiting for that sink to leak. You're actually that on, on balance, that's probably going to break in yeah. X amounts. <clears throat> I don't know. Quite interesting, isn't it? Because 300 million jobs is quite significant. significant, to say the least, and certainly something we've never seen, even in the global financial crisis or anywhere close to that number. So. It's quite a large number. You just wonder whether that's accurate or over-exaggerated or actually it's just going to completely redefine how we all live and operate. I mean, we were reading an article the other day about AI and how actually because of artificial intelligence and ability to do all of the analytical side of the workplace, that actually clearly, Alex, what you said earlier, that relationships are becoming increasingly important and Clearly, real estate has always been a relationship business, but that it will actually cause people to possibly be in the office more and that work from home might eventually start to reduce over time. Because if you've got AI and people have got the ability to essentially get those services without a human person doing it, then it's all about the relationships. And then one has to be in the office in order to foster those relationships so it's just an interesting counter balance between the trends that we're clearly seeing of working from home and having more of a flexible lifestyle you hear so many different theories about whether mm. people are going to go back to the office or or, or stay away from it uh, the futurologist yesterday was predicting actually the, the reverse he, oh, really? he, he felt that actually and again it was, it was quite interesting he was talking about the new apple goggles and yeah and just how groundbreaking they were in in the ability to sit there and still be in a room and yeah and seeing things as, as you normally would but you've got your apps you've got your screens in front of you you you, you don't need an office and he was saying you, you might not need to equip everyone's got on the trend of building build to rent schemes with home offices because that was the thought that everyone's going to need, need a home office space because they're not going to tra- travel to work anymore but he was saying you might not even that need that now because all you need is a sofa and these goggles and mm. you've got your four screens up in front of you you've got all of your apps you you, you can do your team's call you can see someone right next to you even if they're s- sat across in a different country incredible that is incredible isn't it yeah 
I mean, the I suppose Alex comes back to what you were saying before about the success or or people that have been particularly successful in the real estate sector having that emotional intelligence really as as a factor is like the irreplaceable part and those emotional intelligence relation-based roles industries perhaps won't suffer so much in the rise of of artificial intelligence but well depending on how far it it can go um but but definitely like jamie was saying i guess more those input and output roles that that can be replaced and, and don't need that added input or, or relationship input or, or emotional input definitely i can see that being under jeopardy albeit that i you know i guess to play devil's advocate on it there are those ai generated chat rooms now where you you can find a, an AI generated friend who is the, yeah. who's there to mm. listen to cues and 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 actually respond to your emotional needs and so possibly even even that emotional intelligence bit could could be replaced by AI which is a terrifying thought. yeah I mean you hear I don't know if you saw that film probably about ten years ago oh yeah the Johnny Depp one. I can't remember who actually was in it. but he falls in love with the AI. falls in love with an artificial person at some point in the future. And it feels that actually that's that's something that might actually be real at some point. Or it's like a Blade Runner-esque. Yeah. Yeah. But it's interesting what you were saying. We we were having a conversation yesterday about data and how, as you say, AI, AI will be able to do all your data analysis. And so the question got asked, well, AI is effectively sourcing that data just by sifting the internet so how hard would it be to manipulate that and you get your ai bot to put a lot of false data into the market to to drive up a market or drive a rental profile so could you then find yourselves actually having to monitor having the human aspect monitor one ai bot versus another ai bot makes sense to actually discern what what is the truth and what's not it's true, like fake news, I suppose, and things like that could be a lot more damaging and travel a lot quicker if it's coming through on these platforms where you're taking what's coming out as fact. And in fact, do we need to like challenge? We think AI is that's fact and truth, but you're right in saying, well, how do we know in the wrong hands what's actually being fed to us and who's actually managing these platforms and what are their goals um, behind? putting this out there so going back to the two truths and a lie which one do we think is the lie in this instance alex i'm, I'm gonna go 300 million jobs with chat gpt being the second app is probably might be number one i know yeah i agree with you george that's probably right well george you have redeemed yourself on this one it's got score draw nailed it <laughs> It is the fastest growing app at the moment, which is interesting, terrifying, interesting. Yeah. It's pretty scary. And we had at dinner last night, one of the, one of the people saying that they've got, they've had some of their team using ChatGPT to take me- meeting minutes. But then it's, yeah, someone made a joke and it's like brackets, making a joke at someone's expense within the minutes and all this <laughs> stuff, so... Oh yeah, I joined a meeting the other day where there was an AI actually present on the meeting on Zoom <clears throat> and it was making notes of the meeting and then it sent follow-ups based on what you said during the course of the meeting. Oh, I'll send this document or you know, I'll provide you with this comparable evidence and various other things. So you got various emails afterwards from this AI asking for the information it was quite interesting it's so interesting yeah so it's already happening but moving on to how it's actually going to affect the student or the person living within a co-living building or living within a btr block what do you see in terms of your developments because clearly these are the developments that have been tried and tested over a long period of time and iterated and innovated but how do you think that innovation is going to really transform the built environment and specifically focusing on living from a technology perspective or just gen- general from a design perspective as well and how we look about interacting with physical real estate on that basis student accommodation built around has, has evolved 
if you look at the core product, it hasn't changed a huge amount. You still have pretty much rectangular boxes with, with bedrooms and, and living areas, et cetera. That, that hasn't changed that much. But what people have done a huge amount of work on is actually what is the customer journey? How, how do you create these meet points? How do, you, how do you create an opportunity for someone to meet someone, interact and forge the community? It's all driven by that classic, if you have friends in the building, you are more likely to stay. All, all people operating residential Real estate want people to stay. You don't want to have churn. You want longer tenancy terms, etc. So we put a lot of effort alongside Fresh in terms of trying to map out how do you facilitate that within a building. And I have seen some developers, I didn't necessarily agree with the strategy, but they had a lift which enforced you to get out at certain floors, even though it wasn't your floor, because what they were trying to do was actually manufacture meeting points Mm -hmm. and getting what could be quite an anonymous building. You've got people probably complaining that they've been kicked out of the lift on that floor. I'm not sure we would go there, but it, you know, there is that concept. And on single family housing and, and build to rent, people are trying to understand. Actually, it's easier to create a community potentially in a building where, where you've got a captive audience and, you, and you've got set meeting areas. How, how do you do that on, on a, an acreage where, where you've got individual houses? How, how do you foster community with it, within that environment? So that's quite interesting. People haven't quite landed on it yet but uh, again people are looking at how they orientate roads how they orientate the footpaths to try and make make people meet that that is that is a really interesting concept for residential for rent no that's a great point and that needs something that everyone needs to consider more and more as we move forward because as you say technology has the power to actually bring people together in so many different ways and actually if you've if you're living in a build-to-rent block or single-family housing and you're, you're uploading your profile, I suppose, to a portal beforehand and then it's matching like-minded individuals together and somewhat manufacturing those in some form of way, that then creates that sense of community that feels a bit more natural than just a forced encounter. Yeah, no, definitely. I can definitely see a world where they've got, like, Tom drinks three glasses of wine a night. Tom must go to the cocktail making class tonight. (laughs) Or there's a DJ night. Yeah. (laughs) Headed up by yours truly. I don't think people would be learning much if that was the case. (laughs) You'd be flocking down from York. Yeah. You are going to have to come out to the For one last last hurrah. I really shouldn't have shared this with you at at any point. (laughs) It's going to run and run. One more question from my perspective, if that's okay. Obviously, you've both come from at some point an agency so obviously Alex has come from an agency through the grab program you've come through a different method which is coming from a more client-side business into the agency world and now moving both into development and management roles so what do you typically look at when you are looking to appoint an agency coming from that type of marketplace it's just useful to understand the key things or tick boxes or elements of that that make your decision a bit more nuanced yeah for for me you need to see some evolution and you need to see some entrepreneurism from your agency advisors the days are are sadly gone where you you just put out a brochure and you get 10 bids and then you go for best bids and everyone's a genius yeah people need to work harder in in these environments but also also just going forward so what what we're looking for is good alignment with our advisors we want them to really understand us our business what are our drivers we want them to obviously connect us to the the best uh, capital and and be innovative in in how we might approach it and you know, sometimes you need your advisors to to challenge you. You know, they're not just there to agree with you; they're there to challenge you and push you. So, yeah, a, a combination of all of those really. George is probably closer to it than I am these days. For me, it's analysis plus narrative, where people have had a load of bids, as Alex says, ten bids on assets, and it is here's a PDF brochure, fire around the market, yeah. bids in four weeks, guys, off we go. That's that is definitely oversimplifying it, but that's there is a degree of truth to that. Really honing on that narrative, why to do a scheme why to invest in Belfast for example that that takes quite a key skill that hook is really important to getting the fund manager or the acquisition guy really hooked into a into a scheme and then it's really the analysis that then backs it up and then for me it's that project management piece as well it's like you need your the best agents and ones that drive the deal forward as well 
Now we're pretty bad at letting agents drive a deal forward because we just the way we're set up, we will drive ourselves. But equally, for transactions to happen, particularly in this market where it is more volatile and where things can move week week by week, having that, that agent driving the deal, making sure that the other side is, is performing to, to timetables, really, really important. So those are the key bits. And the other bit is just around structure, as you alluded to earlier. That obviously the forward fund that we will believe will, will be there long term, but there is more and more nuances around that in the short term given the volatility so really understanding that and how that works for capital how that works for the developer and where that risk sits is, is really important so that's that's the other element which yeah when you've done had a very very clear run of forward fund after forward fund and it's been very very clean and lots of bids introducing that that complexity creates yeah, it, it, it requires a bit more entrepreneurial spirit and also a bit more analysis to really understand this is what you're going to receive and this is what the returns will be yeah and they're both quite bright i mean how we feel is that with the pdfs and the brochures that have been put out it's worked in those bull markets but actually now people are much more critical and they want to really understand and get under the skin of well, what am i actually buying here and especially from an operational real estate perspective and as we continue to see structural changes in offices and new capital pouring in from all parts of the market the collaterals that as agents we put out need to be educational not only on the product and where it is but also on the broader market because a lot of the time as you've seen capital is investing for the first time ever in student housing or btr or co-living so there has to be that sense of education on the use class and education on why the product is different why the developer is different and ultimately why that location is particularly interesting and fascinating for both tenants and investors yeah and that's story storytelling piece as well around the end user like you guys identify so well is that how are people actually gonna operate live work in these environments and and sharing that with the investor is is super important in order to create the full picture for them so thank you guys so much for joining us today really really interesting to hear what you guys have been up to how you see the market and more importantly obviously the future and it was great to hear your perspective on where you think the built environment is going your strategy and innovation and just want to hand over to you guys if you have any final remarks or or things that you want to to share to anyone listening about your personal journey in the space or or more broadly market related or Ken Jones related. Thank you very much for having us. I'll, I'll just reiterate what we said before. We, we are absolutely confident on the enduring success of residential for rent in the UK. We we think from a student, from a built rent perspective, there's still a lot of growth. There's still a lot of opportunity. And yeah, we will come through the, the various challenges that have been presented. And yeah, we've got a lot of optimism for the future of the sectors. Yeah. The overriding piece here is strategically and from a macro perspective, residential for rent remains really, really of key importance for all investors. And I think that will continue to, to remain. It's just, yeah, we'll navigate some turbulence in the short term, but doing deals with good con- counterparties, creating good products, more importantly, product that works for the customers is, is the key the key bits. However, we look at technology, however, we look at AI, that will still be the driving forces. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you.